I'm going to read a section of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 4, um, beginning at verse 17 down to the end of the chapter. There should be an outline in your bulletin that you can follow along with, and there are printed messages at both exits. You can grab one now, or all three exits. Get one now or later if you'd like. And those are also on the church website. Paul says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, or literally it's the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, Do you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger And do not give the devil an opportunity or a foothold. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it might give grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven, has also forgiven you. You know, it happens again and again all over America where a couple meets and something clicks and uh, a romance begins and they fall in love and then they stand there at the front of the church and exchange vows to one another and all of their family and friends are looking on with smiles and And everyone just agrees, my, what a wonderful moment and what a perfect couple. And then at some point after that idyllic scene, it seems like the shine of the romance wears off, problems begin to hit, and the couple realizes they're not quite as compatible as they had thought when they were uh, courting, and the romance fades And conflicts become more intense and frequent. And finally, they sadly conclude that they were not really meant for one another. They're no longer in love. 
And so they separate and hope that maybe the next time around they'll find someone more compatible. And I wish that only happened with all of the Hollywood crowd, you know, the movie stars that you see on the tabloids. But the sad reality is it happens in evangelical churches across our country. The problem is rarely a lack of compatibility because, let's face it, no two sinners are compatible. (laughs) We just aren't. Uh, The problem is that the couple is not working at solving conflicts God's way. Uh, or they're just not willing to follow God's way in solving those conflicts because every married couple is going to have conflict. It's just the way we are made after the fall. And a good marriage is not a conflict-free marriage. It's one where a couple is learning to resolve those conflicts in accordance with God's word, where they deny themselves where they seek to honor and submit to Christ, and they work out their differences in the spirit of Christian love. And you'll have a God-glorifying, satisfying marriage to the extent that you learn to solve conflicts in your marriage God's way. And I'm going to suggest you don't need to find a more compatible partner as much as you need to become a more compatible partner. So don't blame your partner. Look to yourself and seek to obey God's word in those things. Now in our text, Paul gives some principles for solving conflicts. And I am going to be covering here in one message what I did in nine messages when we were in Ephesians. So this is just the superficial overview. If you want more depth, you can Go online and read the nine messages that deal more with these verses. And the context here is not marriage per se, although Paul will get to that in chapter 5. He's talking about conflicts in the local church. He has begun the chapter by talking about the need to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he goes on to talk about how the church will be built up in one body as we Uh, minister one to another, and so on. But certainly, these verses do apply to the smaller unit of the church, namely the family. And so to sum it up, Paul is saying that to resolve conflicts God's way, put off the behavior of the old man, the old person that you were before Christ, and put on the behavior of the new man. And to do that, you have to be walking by the Holy Spirit. So first of all, in verses 17 to 24, Paul says, to resolve conflicts God's way, put off that behavior of the old man. And that's the main source of conflicts among us in our homes and even in our church is what Paul calls here the old man. The translation is the old self here. Sometimes it's referred to as the old sin nature or the flesh. Um, And Paul describes that way of life in verses 17 to 19 as being futile in mind, 
spiritually darkened, alienated from the life of God, ignorant, hard of heart, callous, given over to sensuality and impurity and greedy. And then he says, but, in verse 20, and that's a huge but, showing there is to be a distinct difference between how you used to live when you didn't know Christ and how you live now that Christ is your Savior and Lord. We are to lay aside that old man, old person we were, to be renewed in the spirit of our mind and to put on the new man, uh, which he says in verse 24, in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, there are some scholars who say that we don't have an old sin nature, and uh, they want to argue that we are just a new creation in Christ. And so you ask the question, well, uh, how come we are prone to sin? And their answer is, well, that's the flesh. And my comeback is, I don't see any biblical distinction between the old man, the flesh, the old sin nature, uh, whatever you want to call it. It seems to me that as believers, we still have that strong inner influence that tugs at us and says, uh, preserve yourself, do for yourself, be yourself, you know, it promotes selfishness, and that that is uh, leading us towards sin. That's the source of quarrels and conflicts among us, James says, is that propensity to want our own way. And when we live under the domination of this old nature, the old man, the flesh, whatever you want to call it, the result is going to be conflict because Each person is butting heads one with another. Now, there are other factors, of course, besides the old man, the flesh, that can lead to conflict. I mean, husbands and wives, in case you hadn't noticed, are different genders. And they think differently about certain issues. We are just wired differently. Uh, We come from different family backgrounds. We've all had different life experiences. We come into marriage with different habits. You know, why are you doing it that way? This is obviously the way you should do it. And so we have different ways of doing things, and we have different convictions and values. And so you got all those factors that are just right at the starting gate waiting for conflict. And then when you throw in the old nature, the self, the flesh, Uh, there's just this built-in readiness to cause conflict. Now, Paul is saying that when you experience the new birth, and that is crucial to this whole passage, if you have not come to faith in Christ, then everything else I'm going to be saying today could be a moral improvement project, and that is not God's way. Everything I say is based on God has changed your heart when you came to faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. That's crucial, uh, as we'll see. But when you, you do, he says God created that new man in uh, righteousness and holiness of the truth in verse 24. 
And what he means is this, that the power of the old man was broken, and positionally now in Christ, you are a new creation. You're a a new person in him. And so at, at salvation, you positionally took off the old man, put on the new, and there is a process that goes on mentioned in verse 23 of progressively being renewed in the spirit of your mind as your your mind becomes conformed to God's word. But the practical matter is daily you have to act on that position by believing it is true and uh, denying yourself, putting on that new man that you are in Christ. I think that's what Paul was getting at in Romans chapter 6 and verse 11 where he says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Your old man got buried at salvation, and uh, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Or Jesus was speaking of the same thing, I think, in, in Luke 9.23, when he said, if anyone wishes to come after me to follow him, here's what he must do. He must deny himself, and take up his cross daily and follow me. So there is this daily death to self. The cross was an implement of death. And so there's this daily, repeated self-denial, dying to self, um, a decisive break between the selfish way we used to live before we met Christ and how we now live in him. And as you learn on a daily basis then to believe what God says is true about you, you died to the old way, you're alive now in Christ, then your relationships will improve because I contend selfishness is at the root of virtually every relational conflict we get into. Um, It's the main cause. And so the first step to solve conflicts God's way then is to put off the old man and put on the new man. And the directions are repeat as often as necessary. And it's necessary many, many times every day, even years after you've come to Christ, I fear. Uh, The second part of our text then shows that to resolve conflicts God's way, we need to put on the behavior of the new man. And Paul spells out five behavioral changes of the new man here. The first one in verse 25 is that the new man replaces falsehood with truth. He says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. And then he gives the reason, for we are members of one another. And so again, Paul is aiming this command at the body of Christ, the Christians who are one body in him. But certainly if it's true of the church, it's even more true of husband and wife where we are one flesh with one another. And uh, in all relationships, there has to be truthful communication in order for there to be a resolution of conflicts God's way. Now, First blush, maybe you're thinking, well, that's not my problem. I'm a truthful person. I'm not a liar. I'm honest. But, you know, the the reality is a lot of us don't like confrontation or conflict. And so we tiptoe around the truth or we hold the truth back because we really don't want to 
be honest and we're afraid, well, if I really let my feelings be known, it's going to cause conflict or, you know, that person won't like me or whatever the, the situation may be. But if there's not truth, then there can't be healing. And it builds up after a while where a couple grows in distance because there's not been honest, truthful communication. I have counseled before with wives who are ready to divorce their husband. And I said, well, have you ever sat down and shared with him honestly how you feel about these things? Oh, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. Well, why not? Oh, he'd explode, you know. So they'd rather divorce then be truthful. You know, they, they just don't want to deal with the potential conflict that would go on. Now, Paul uses the analogy of the body when he says we're members of one another. You know, if your nerve that goes down from your brain to your foot is damaged, you're going to have a problem walking because th- there's not communication between what your brain is saying, move, and what your foot does. There has to be uh, communication in your physical body for there to be health. And uh, the same thing in relational healing. There has to be truthful communication because your mate cannot deal with a problem that he or she is not aware of. And often this happens in the church where someone has a problem and they don't come and talk to us about it and then they leave the church hurt because we didn't deal with the problem. Uh, We don't deal with problems we don't know about. We need to hear about it, and we can't always fix everything, but at least then you can work on it. But the point I'm making is just to put on a happy face, mask over your true feelings, and not honestly communicate uh, is not going to foster healthy relationships. As Paul says back up in verse 15, For the body to build itself in love, we have to be speaking the truth in love. So there's truth, but in love. Now, I'm not suggesting that a couple be ruthlessly honest about everything and sharing everything. One time I I counseled a young couple who was having trouble in their marriage. And as I found out what was going on, I found out that the husband thought that to be truthful... He had to share with his wife in detail every time he had a lustful thought about some young woman. And the poor wife was a nervous wreck. I mean, she was insecure in the marriage and thought, boy, he's going to be unfaithful to me. And I explained to him, I said, that's not loving. That may be truthful, but it's not loving because you're, you're not seeking your wife's highest good. What you need to do is judge your sinful thought before the Lord Put it away from you and uh, be sensitive to your wife and her feelings. So a general rule before you share something is to ask, well, is this an ongoing problem that's damaging our relationship, that's causing distance in the relationship? And if you avoid talking about a matter that's hurting your relationship, then you're not being loving. You're not seeking the highest good of the other person and of your relationship, and you're not speaking truth. On the other hand, to just unload, because that's just the way I feel, 
is not to be loving. You're speaking the truth, but not in love. You're to speak truth, but do it in love, in a way that will be received. And the goal is always to foster mutual understanding and love. That's the first thing Paul says, to resolve conflict, speak the truth. Now, the second one here is one that's a little difficult to understand, but I think what he's saying is that the new man replaces indifference with righteous anger, verses 26 and 27. He says, be angry and yet do not sin and don't let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Uh, You know, when he's dealing here with healthy relationships, you might think that there's a mistake in the text that he really said, don't be angry and therefore sin. But he says, be angry and don't sin, yet don't sin. Now, a number of different explanations by commentators, but first of all, I think we need to recognize this. Righteous anger is a Christ-like character quality. Because in Mark 3, 5, it says that Jesus was angry with the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness. So to be like Christ at times... There are times to be angry. Now, we have to be careful because we often mistake the times, as uh, one old saint used to say. But I think what Paul is saying is this. Something worse than anger is indifference. Indifference. And if you care deeply for someone and that person is repeatedly sinning, You need to be motivated by enough anger to deal with it. Because again, we all tend to avoid confrontation. And it is righteous anger that moves you to say, wait a minute, this is wrong and it needs to be corrected. And it moves you toward loving confrontation. And if you don't get righteously angry, you just shrug your shoulders and say, well, you know, that's not the way I would want to act, but that's his life, her life, then you're not loving the person. It would be like watching somebody go toward the cliff at the Grand Canyon, you know, at 60 miles an hour in their car and say, man, I wouldn't do that. But, you know, it's his life. No, you'd want to signal, stop, stop. You're going to destroy yourself. And Paul here cites Psalm 4 and verse 4 from the Septuagint. And I think what he's saying is this. Be angry enough so that you don't just indifferently shrug off someone's sin, but in the process, be careful that your righteous anger doesn't cross the line into sinful anger. And don't let it fester for days on end because that's not going to be healthy. Deal with it and put it aside so that the devil doesn't get a foothold in your life. And as I understand verses 26 and 27, that's what he's saying. Now, anger that just flares up, I think, is unrighteous anger because God is slow to anger. He is in control when he is angry. And so that's not righteous anger. We are to be slow to anger, James says. Uh, Anger that clams up and just, you know, I'm not going to even talk to him. That's not righteous anger, again, because it's not truthful. 
and it's just turning into bitterness and hatred, and uh, it's based on self, not for seeking love and reconciliation. Righteous anger, and again, we have to be very careful, is motivated by the knowledge sin damages people. And my mate, this loved one, my child, whoever it may be, is sinning repeatedly. So I need lovingly to confront. And my motive is restoration and reconciliation, not to prove I'm right, you're wrong, but rather I want to see harmony in a relationship. And so you attack the problem, not the person. Now, we have to be careful because it's so easy to cross that line and become selfish in our anger. And uh, it's also easy just to back off and say, ah, you know, I'm not going to deal with this. I think the point is righteous anger motivates us to deal with a problem in a relationship. And uh, self-sacrificing love becomes righteously angry enough to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's wrong. And that's damaging our relationship. And we need to talk, and, and you need to come in submission to Jesus Christ. So, first, truthfulness. Second, uh, not indifference, but righteous anger. Thirdly, the new man replaces selfishness with giving. Verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he'll have something to share with the one who has need. Now, In the context, Paul isn't talking again with um, marriage here. He's talking about the need for Christian people to be hardworking, honest people with an orientation toward giving to others, not taking. But I think there's a principle here, since the context is healthy relationships, where it's easy in relationships to be a taker and not a giver. You know, I want them to meet my needs, and we're not thinking about meeting the other person's needs. And the truth is, as I've already said, our old man is motivated by selfishness. We're out to get what we can. And so we're looking for our needs and saying, my needs aren't being met. And instead of that, Paul is uh, applying this, I think, saying, you need to be thinking of others' needs. And you need to be a giver, not a taker. Because you can never resolve conflicts if you're trying to uh, just use the relationship for meeting your needs and do that at the other's expense. Um, I think also that means you have to orient your thinking to say, huh, I wonder what her needs are today. How can I meet her needs or his needs, rather than thinking selfishly, how can I meet my needs? And so we need to learn to be be givers. And marriage isn't 50-50. Marriage has to be 100-100, where we give and give and give and then give some more because that's how our Savior, of course, dealt with us. And so replacing selfishness with giving is a key to resolving conflicts. And when the other person sees you're interested in their needs, they'll open up and be more open to reconciliation. A fourth 
way the new man is different than the old man is the new man replaces destructive speech with constructive speech, and that's verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it might give grace to those who hear. Destructive speech tears down the other person, uh, and that doesn't resolve conflicts. Years ago, I memorized Proverbs twelve eighteen that says, There's one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And the picture there is your tongue can rip and just slash someone to bits, or it can skillfully go in like a surgeon with a scalpel. And yeah, you need to cut a little, but your goal is to bring healing to that relationship. And when Paul talks about unwholesome words, the Greek word is literally rotten. And I always think of a rotten tomato where you throw it at somebody to uh, express your disapproval. Some of the ways we use rotten speech are name-calling, sarcasm, ridicule, mockery, gossip, slander, blaming the other person, destructive criticism, uh, angry words where we threaten or we say, I'm going to get even, that kind of attitude, griping, complaining, lying, profanity, filthy talk, dirty jokes. When your purpose is to wound the other person rather than heal, you're using rotten speech. That's the point. Your speech should be to heal. Now, we're not just to hold our words and not say rotten words, but Paul adds that we are to replace those destructive words with words that build up according to the need of the moment. And if you think, yeah, but they don't deserve it, Paul kind of gets you at the end of the verse when he says that it may give grace to those who hear. Grace is undeserved. Undeserved blessing or favor. That's what grace is. And so Paul says, all right, maybe they don't deserve it. Give them grace anyway. Give them grace. God's grace wasn't something we earned or deserved. He gave it to us in spite of our sin. Now, of course, there's a proper place for criticism. There's a proper place for correction. Sometimes you have to do that. But your aim is crucial. Are you trying to hurt and win? Or are you trying to heal so that they win? That's the difference. Your mate should, your your goal should be, I want my mate to grow in Christ. And so you come along with that aim. And you want God to be glorified in your marriage, in your relationship, parent-child or family, whatever. But one action point I would encourage you to do, if you've never done so, is write Ephesians 4.29 on a 3 by 5 card and read it over every morning two or three or four times until you got it memorized. And then when you're ready to lash out with that sword, you'll say, wait a minute, wait a minute, no rotten speech. My speech needs to build up to give grace to the other person. And then the final 
characteristic of the new man. It replaces sinful anger with kindness and forgiveness. And here we're in verses 31 and 32. Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And in its place, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. And here's the standard, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So there are six behaviors there to put off. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. And those all describe selfish behavior that stems from the old man. Bitterness happens when you harbor hurt feelings over the long haul and you just get um, angry long-term because you're keeping score. You're thinking, he's wronged me here and he's wronged me here. He's wronged me here. And it just goes into this kind of alienation that happens. Uh, it's long-term hostility. The word wrath comes from a Greek word meaning to boil, and it talks about eruptions, you know, just outbursts of anger. Uh, anger, the third word, refers to a settled disposition, often with the aim of getting revenge. You know, I'm going to make him or her pay for what he's done. That's anger. Clamor is loud words. Could be yelling, screaming, could be loud crying, but it's manipulative. You're trying to use your emotional outburst to bring that other person, either to make them back off so you get your way. Uh, it's, it's manipulative and it's selfish because you're trying to get your way and put the other person down. Slander, of course, means speaking against someone, usually to someone else. You're trying to damage the other person's reputation to make you look good. So somebody wrongs you and you go to someone else and say, you know what he did to me? Let me tell you. And he makes you look good and him look like the villain. The word malice is just a general term for any kind of ill will. You might say having it in for someone. You know, you want to get them. You want to see them brought down. All of those behaviors are the opposite of self-sacrificing love that wants to build the other person up. And Paul says, put those off. And the word pictures, you know, when you come in after working out in the yard and your clothes are dirty and sweaty and you just want to take them off and after you shower, put on some clean clothes. And the put on is in verse 32. Kindness is the opposite of being harsh, and it has the idea of being useful. And so a kind person, again, is other-oriented. He's thinking about others' needs and saying, if I were in her situation, I'll bet here's what I would like. And so you think about the other person. Um, To be tender-hearted is to feel deeply with another to love the other person and just to show it with your feelings coming alongside. And both of those words together, I think, mean um, you might sum them up by being gracious. You give someone room to grow. 
you give them time to make mistakes and realize, yeah, I do, t- do that too. And so it's that kind of gentle attitude. And then Paul says forgiving each other. And the word for forgiveness, again, is based on the word for grace in the Greek New Testament. And Paul gives the standard. How did God in Christ forgive, forgive you? That's how you should forgive others. Remember Jesus' parable in Matthew 18 about the servant that had been forgiven $10 billion, and he goes and grabs a fellow slave that owes him a few thousand dollars and forces him to pay up or else throws him in prison. And the point of the parable is you can't ever match the enormous debt that God forgave you in Christ. And so now you have to forgive your brother or sister, your husband, your wife, your parent, your child, um, what they've wronged you. Forgiveness is always costly. You bear the, the cost. It's never easy. It's always hard. Um... I think in a family, it's important to keep short accounts. If you wrong someone in your family, go to them as quickly as you can and say, I am so sorry I was wrong when I snapped at you or yelled at you this morning or whatever you did, and I've come to ask, will you forgive me? And those kind of short accounts keep that from building up. And then you have to forgive the other person in your heart So that the second they ask for forgiveness, it's a done deal. You forgive them. So Paul says to to resolve conflicts, you have to put off daily those selfish behaviors of the old man. Put on daily the loving behaviors of the new man, which are Christ-like. And that opens the door for communication and problem-solving where resolution can happen. Now, I skipped a verse, and uh, I think it's the key to solving conflicts, and that is verse 30, where Paul says to resolve conflicts God's way, we need to walk by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's significant that right here in the middle of resolving conflicts, Paul brings in the Holy Spirit. And he says that the Holy Spirit sealed you for the day of redemption. That means he is the seal. He sealed you with himself. And he mentions grieving the Spirit. And you know, grieving is a love word. You're only grieved when someone you love hurts you. And so the Spirit of God loves us. He is a person, not a force. He indwells us. And the sins mentioned here, deception, verse 25, indifference, verse 26, stealing, verse 28, rotten speech in verse 29, bitterness, wrath, anger, yelling, slander, malice in verse 31, all grieve the indwelling spirit of God. And so, first of all, that implies that our motive for harmonious relationships in our homes, first and foremost, isn't just so we can have a happy home, although that's a result. It's so that we are right with God and we glorify God. It has to be a Godward focus. 
And uh, <clears throat> to do that, we need to put off the old man, put on the behavior of the new man. And the reason is we don't want to hurt the indwelling spirit of God. We don't want to cause distance in our relationship with the spirit of God. And that means also you can't separate your relationship with God from your relationship with others. First John, John says, if you say I love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. John speaks pretty bluntly. He says, you, you can't love God whom you've not seen if you can't love your brother whom you have seen. So relationally, loving God, loving one another are uh, linked very closely. And so what that means is if you say, well, I'm a Christian, but you're going around shredding relationships in your family with those who live with you, uh, you need to go back to square one and say, am I really a Christian? You may be, but you're not living like it because Christians live to deny self and to exalt Christ in the daily relationships that we have in our home. So at, at best, you may be grieving the Spirit of God who has sealed you for the day of redemption. At worst, you may not even have the Spirit of God because the very first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and then joy and peace and all of those other fruits. So <clears throat> the way that we put off the old man the deeds of the flesh, and put on the new man is to walk daily by means of the Spirit. That's what Paul says in Galatians 5.16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And he goes on to mention many of these deeds of the flesh that are here in Ephesians 4, there in Galatians 5. And then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, granted... Fruit takes time to grow. It's not instant. So this is a process. But it means that to solve conflicts in your marriage, you have to be cultivating that fruit of the Spirit daily in your life by denying self, by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, or in other terms, walking in the power and dependence on the Holy Spirit. The other part of it, of course, is being in the Word of God. Because as you read the Word, the Spirit of God uses it to convict you and go, you know what, the, the Word says this, and you're living this. Ouch. You need to change. And so it's the Word that cleanses us as we are in it every day. As he goes on and says in chapter 5 that uh, husbands might see their wives cleansed by the washing of water with the word. And as you do that, there are these sins, dishonesty, verse 25, indifference, selfishness, abusive speech, anger. You begin to get convicted. And then you begin to realize, oh, wow, I am grieving the spirit of God. And I, I need to put all those things off and instead... I need to put on those behaviors of the new man, truthfulness and caring confrontation and giving and words that build up and kindness and all of that. Ogden Nash is a poet and he's got these witty short verses and one of them is, to keep your marriage brimming with love in the loving cup, 
When you're wrong, admit it. When you're right, shut up. <laughs> Not bad. And I don't think Ogden Nash was a Christian, but he understood that, didn't he? But the point of this is, if, if you're experiencing frequent conflict in your home, rather than pointing at your mate, examine your own heart and ask, am I daily putting off the selfish behavior of the old man? Am I daily putting on the Christ-like behavior of the new man? And is my motive to please the Lord who gave himself on the cross for me? And the bad news is every marriage is incompatible because we're all born sinners and we carry a lot of that of the flesh into our new Christian life. But the good news is as we daily die to self and put on Christ, we can experience harmonious, peaceful, joyous marriages and relationships parent to child in our homes. And our aim is God, we want you to look good in our home. That's our motive. Let's bow before him. If you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible has bad news. And that is that you're under God's wrath and judgment. And if you were to die today, you would be in an eternity of trouble. The great news is, without anything other than coming to Christ, calling out to the Lord, trusting in Jesus, you can be forgiven of all your sins. The righteousness of Christ is yours as a free gift when you trust in him. And that transaction can take place in your heart right now. As you cry out, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I need Jesus. I want Christ to forgive my sin and to to cause me to be born again to a living hope. If this message through the word of God has convicted your heart of things you need to deal with, We're going to be coming to the Lord's table in just a moment. It's a chance to confess your sins to the Lord and then uh, to recognize and appropriate his forgiveness as we partake. Dear Father, thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that didn't make us measure up first and then forgive us, but forgave us all our sins and now gives us the Holy Spirit to enable us to live a life pleasing to you. So we give you thanks.